A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So Matt, a lot of people get the prostate and the scrotum confused. But in actual fact, there's a vast difference between the two. Vast difference? Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. COVID-19 has messed up our recording schedule. It has indeed, has indeed. I think the last episode we did was a COVID-19 episode. It was. And that would have been just as things were kicking through. You and I weren't isolating at the time. We're about to, though. Yeah, I mean... Remember Matt, I invited you to a lockdown here? A lockdown <laughs> party, which is strange. You invited all his best friends to a lockdown party. <laughs> Um, so, th- in in Australia and Queensland, in Australia where we live, the uh, lockdown laws uh, are slowly lifting restrictions. Twel- I should say twelfth of May. Yeah. So at the moment, I can actually come to Matt's house and do a recording legally. Legally, <laughs> um, and we're sitting what six foot apart. Yeah. I use uh, look without COVID nineteen, I don't like to get closer than six foot to Matt anyway. He stinks. So. We today are doing an episode on the prostate. Why, Michael? Why? Um, well, we're going to go through all the different organs and structures of the body. Okay. Um, why not start at the prostate? That's true. That's true. It's, a, it's an interesting little structure. It is. And I think we must begin by saying that there is a vast difference between prostate and prostrate. I, th- I thought you meant the prostate and the scrotum. Well, it's true. But everyone knows that that was a joke and the scrotum is, uh, houses the testes and the prostate is a gland that houses the urethra but also produces a bunch of fluid and that's part of ejaculate. 
but I want you to tell me the difference because a lot of our students get prostate and prostrate mixed up. They write, they write it down. They write prostrate when they mean prostate. What's prostrate mean? Uh, to bow? Yeah. Yeah, to bow, to lay down, to, you know. Submit? Submit, uh, which is different to prostate. Mm, don't R- get them mixed up. Yeah, get rid of that second R. All right. Now, talking about the prostate, I think we should begin about by sort of discussing generally where it sits in the body. And so it would sit in your pelvis. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And you'd find that directly above it is going to be the bladder, which is the storage unit for our urine. Correct. Uh, directly in front of the prostate is what's called our pubic symphysis, mm-hmm. which is part of our pubis, a bit of fibrocartilage that connects the pubis together at the front. Yep. There's a little bit of a fat pad behind that, and then there's the prostate. So it's you know very close to the pubis uh, anteriorly. Posteriorly, uh, it's close to the rectum. And so the rectum will only have a bit of fascia and fat as well before it hits the uh, prostate. This is one reason why you can stick the finger up and uh, palpate the prostate through the rectum. Uh, And then clinically, 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 (laughs) not for fun. And below the prostate, you've got uh, basically part of the urethra that's going towards the penis. Yeah, or the urethra is going through the prostate. Yes. So there is the urethra that's coming from the bladder. There's the urethra that's in the prostate and then there's the urethra that's going into the penis and yep. through the penis. Yep. And so that's hopefully orientating you to where the prostate is. Bladder above, penis below, pubis in front, rectum behind, generally speaking. Yep, yep. You okay with that? Sounds good. And what, what's the, you know, generally why do we have a prostate? Well, it's one of the three glandular tissues in the um, male reproductive system. Um, what are the other two? The seminal vesicles and the bulbar urethral glands. Ah. And so those three put together... Is that also known as Cowper's, Cowper's yeah. glands? Yeah. But we've gone away from naming things after old dead white guys? Correct. Okay. And there appears to be also, uh, I think it's paraurethral uh, para is the female equivalent to oh. the prostate gland. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so the prostate... Being one of the glands, we know that glands are cells or tissues that produce hormones. Can do. Yeah, uh, but they can produce other products. Yeah, so it would probably be considered an exocrine gland, so it's creating a fluid but putting into ducts. Okay, so and different, not quack-quack ducts, but tubes. Yeah, D-U-C-T, ducts. Gotcha. So, but, so what's the difference between exocrine and endocrine? Endocrine is usually, it puts it into blood. Puts what? Um, whatever it creates, like the chemical molecule it creates, okay. the duct or the gland, should yep. I say, puts it into a blood vessel. Yeah, so that's and endocrine. It, and then it will go wherever the blood takes it. And what's so exocrine? Exocrine is usually into a ductal system, so it will then be uh, secreted into a, a locality. Okay. So, so, you know, you could think about the pancreas as an example of both. So you have its exocrine functions being all the digestive enzymes that gets put into the pancreatic duct, but that gets um, dropped off into the duodenum, and that's for digestion. But at the same time, it helps create, uh, well, it does create insulin in a response to blood glucose, and that will go off into the blood to help you regulate your blood sugar levels. Okay, so exocrine, exocrine, chemicals in tubes, endocrine, chemicals in blood. Yep. All right, so this is an exocrine gland, 
into tubes and it's releasing what type of chemicals? Just a whole bunch of stuff or is it chemicals that promote the male reproductive cycle? Are the chemicals part of, they're part of ejaculate, right? Part of... I don't think the males really have a cycle, unlike the female. I think they're just constantly making uh, sperm okay. through the whole life. Not whole life? Well, through From the, puberty on. Oh, yeah, sure, 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 sure. So once you are producing those hormones, then you are actively producing sperm, so you are fertile, and this is just not cyclical like we see in females. It's just ongoing. Okay. And you probably do it till you die. Wow. In, there you go. In a normal adult, I'd assume, without you know infertility issues. Yeah. Um, I don't want to. I think you can take over in terms of everything it produces. Yeah. But there's a lot of hormones that kind of play a role with its function, mm. particularly testosterone and dihydrotestosterone. Epitestosterone. And so um, that will have a function on the, the prostate and also maybe its dysfunction, which we can talk about a bit later. Okay, so if... Okay, all right, so we know where it is. We generally know what it does. Uh, when does it develop? So you are... Just to finish that last point, though, um, I don't know how this works, but I was just looking... Um, at, a, at a study, you know, 1950s. They always did the, the good stuff in the 20th century, didn't they? They did. So they, they used you to... You could say they do the seminal work then. <laughs> <laughs> I need the boom bumch. Thank you. Um, so it, for some reason, I don't know how, you, how, how they got around to this doing this, but they would take prostates out of animals. I think dogs were a big one. And then we're a big prostate, or uh, we're well, they do have big, they do have big prostate, but that, we'll get back to that later. All right. Um, but they used to pull it, pull them out surgically, um, mince it all up, and then put it into other animals like uh, rabbits. What do you mean, put it in, like, as in like, feed it to them? No, no, no. <laughs> IV injection, like the to the bloodstream, the supinate, or the uh, I don't know the probably oh. probably the supinate. So they used to blend it up, and then they used to intravenously inject it. Put it into Maybe it. it was because they had they had a theory that it would it's producing other things than just for semen. Were there any outcomes from these? Yeah, studies? it would go into um, it would have a significantly um, increased vascular response, and so it would go into a vascular kind of spasm, really like hypertensive, and then go into shock and die. Um, They'll die from having. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it was to do with an infection or something, but I think it was quite rapid. Um, and right. they and they believe that it has degrees of um, catecholamines in it. Okay. And, but I wonder if that's so they're things do, like adrenaline and yeah, dopamine and serotonin. That's right. And, yeah, that's okay. right. And so it causes strong vascular changes. Wow. Which causes hypertension then for those rabbits' death. But but saying that in the in the ductal cells, so you have kind of thirty to fifty ductal uh, units in your prostate. Um, which are kind of like circular around the duct. Mm. And most of that that goes around the, the, the duct itself is a tubular cells, which is endocrinal, sorry, not endocrinal, epithelial tissue, which would produce presumably the secretion. But you also have neuroepithelium there, which I guess allows the neural response to either parasympathetic or sympathetic. Yeah, um, This is just me presuming here no no um, that, that, that's a good point because so maybe th- those cells were the effect on in the vascular or the rabbit well that's what i was going to say because while the gland itself um produces products that jump into the tubes that end up in the urethra and get ejaculated 
the prostate itself needs to get a stimulus to grow, divide, develop, and produce that stuff. And that is a neuroendocrine stimulus. Mm -hmm. So it's either going to be, like you said, catecholamines or other endocrine signals like testosterone that come in. So you're probably right when they probably pulled the prostate out, as we'll find out shortly, uh, it's, it's a, there's a very complex arrangement of neural fibers and uh, blood vessels around the prostate. And so they probably, I assume they weren't very, uh, how would you say, um, delicate with their procedure. And they probably pulled a whole bunch of stuff out and minced it all up, which probably, like you said, included the catecholamines and the hormones that stimulate the prostate itself, which ended up telling the rabbit to uh, go into vascular spasm and uh, cark it. Cark it, yeah. But interestingly... Cark it's an Aussie term in case there's international listeners here. Yeah, it means to kick the bucket. <laughs> so, do you know that why it's called the prostate gland? I don't, I don't know. This is not me trying to get something out of you and then not answer and then <laughs> be enlightening you. Um, <laughs> no, I, I actually don't know. I thought it had something to do with prostaglandin. No, the prostaglandins were named after the prostate. Okay. However, we now know that the prostate doesn't produce prostaglandins. So is that the seminal vesicle? Yeah, the seminal vesicle produces the prostaglandins. Right. Yeah, which we'll talk about. Which then has an effect on the the female's cervix. Yeah, so prostaglandins, the way I discuss it with my students is that there's, you know, like a 20 different types of prostaglandins out there uh, and they do everything in the body. So you you think of some activity, the prostaglandins are going to... Usually smooth muscle contraction. Smooth muscle contraction, inflammation, irritation, stimulating nerve fibers. Um, They they do a whole bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like you just said, one of the important roles that the prostaglandins play in uh, the uh, basically the seminal fluid is that if it is ejaculated into a vagina, it breaks up that mucosa, that thick, viscous mucus that's been produced um, and also helps irritate the cervix itself to promote muscular stimulations to bring yeah, that sperm up. That's what I that. thought it was about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, so come back to your question in terms of development. So this oh, is the go- question I asked 20 minutes ago. Yeah, so this is going to be quite hard oh, to... One thing, Matt, before we... No, yeah. go on. Just pause there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's going to be hard to illustrate this because... Embryology really needs images to work alongside the Look, explanation. Let's be honest. Even if you had the capacity to draw <laughs> them, no one would understand them. That's true. My drawing's too small. <laughs> <laughs> if you watch Matt's videos on YouTube, which I suggest you do, because he's probably the best embryologist I know, and I do know two embryologists, that his videos are brilliant. But he does write very, very small, very tiny. I've got magnifying glasses. Yeah, you so should have a look at him. His, his normal glasses are just two magnifying glasses duct taped <laughs> together. All right, embryology. Go on. So the prostate comes out of the genitourinary system. Okay, so these are, this is a system that kind of happens together. So the formation of the kidneys and the urethra, ureter, urethra um, forms in parallel to the genital system. And so this is all happening at the same time. So obviously with embryology... Uh, it's it's very time frame dependent, right? Mm-hmm. And so certain structures or tissues or groups of organs will develop together at certain time points. Yeah. So are you saying that the whole genitourinary tract or system develops together? Pretty much. Pretty okay. Much, yeah. But the only difference is the kidney goes up and the gonads go down. From where is it? Is oh, it, like or is the, it? It's in the abdominal, the back of the abdominal cavity. Yeah. So kind of where you would expect. 
either kind of at either side of your vertebra, kind of like lower thoracic, upper lumbar in that region. So kidneys go up, what goes down? The gonads. Makes sense. Hope you don't want it to go the other way. So the gonads are sitting up higher and they've kind of got two ducts on each side running next to them. Okay, so you've got two gonads on each side of your vertebra and running just lateral to them are two ductal systems. Connected to them? No, no, not, not connected yet. Okay. Okay, and so the two ductal systems, the one closest to the gonad is called the uh, mesonephrous duct yeah. and the one just slightly lateral to that is the paramesonephritic duct. Sometimes we call Wolfian duct and the Malarian duct. Right. Maybe it's difference? easier maybe it's easier just to use those terms. What's okay. the difference? Uh, what in at this point? Well there's two ducts next to each other. Yeah. Which both sit laterally to the gonads. Yeah. Um, and this is and this and this is paired, so it's on both sides. Yeah. So I does one connect to the gonads and one connects to the kidneys? No. Okay. So this is this is just for the genitals now. Oh, okay. okay. So ignore the kidneys from now That's on. Right. We're yep. gonad focused. That's right. We are a gonad focused podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and so these two um, ductals on each side, so the malarian and the wolfian, both sides are going all the way down and kind of joining in together, they're kind of merging together, um, where you'd kind of say that where the cloaca is. Wait a minute. We're, we're not a bird. At this point, we are. Okay. <laughs> okay. Hey, so, okay. No, no. This is an interesting point. We have a cloaca at some point during yeah. embryological development. Yeah, yeah. Which and just define a cloaca for our it's listeners. It's just a collective uh, hole, ductal hole. Yeah, um, where both the digestive and the urinary excretions get put into come together. So if you look at a bird, it poos and pees out of the same place and so probably the white part of the, the toilet <laughs> the white part of the poo the bird poo yeah that you see in bird poo is probably the nitrogenous genius yeah nitrogenous there we go yeah it's like uh, the waste u- waste the, of the uric the, acid of the kidney yeah okay that's why it's such high nitrogen anyway all right, all right. Um, so, so the two, a, two tubes are coming together below the gonads and they yeah and well, no 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 they just kind of come together coalesce together oh okay yeah, into it. but the, this part of the cloaca is then returned to the urogenital sinus, right. which is kind of the the part that then comes to the outside of the body. Okay, happy with that so far. So when you say it comes to the outside of the body, you're talking about the penis. No, not this point. This oh, okay. hasn't been developed yet, but um, probably where uh, the rectum will form on one part, on the posterior part, and the external urethra will form on the anterior part. Oh, so get, this cloaca separates yeah, into the rectum. A septum and comes down and separates them too. One into a rectum, posteriorly, and then anteriorly into the urethral orifice. So embryologically, the rectum and the anterior urethral orifice is the same tissue? Um, good question. It's probably coming from the, the somatic epithelium, which is um, going to be innovating is um, from the body, and that's why it's different to what's coming downwards, which is... Uh, visceral and that's why i mean a good example is the rectum that's why you have this kind of junction in the lower part of the rectum where you have somatic fibers which give you certain innovation but above that you have visceral innovation and that's why the well the rectum such a an interesting part with neural innovation because um anything above this line which they call the dentate dentate line very good 
Um, that only has kind of uh, the way that the tissue is uh, processed from a, a sensory point of view only has kind of a, a stretch sense, whereas anything below it has the, the typical somatics like your skin gotcha. so you can feel different sensations in the lower part of your rectum. You know, hence yeah. why you know it's a poo and not um, diarrhea or a fart. True. Thank, <laughs> and, and, thank the Lord. And that's why, we've probably said this before, that's why it's so important for the surgeons if you have bowel cancer or rectal cancer to preserve that lower part. Mm. Otherwise, the p- person will not know what's coming out, which would be terrible. Especially on a date. Mind the pun. But <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, is that a pun? In Australia, we call the date. <laughs> the back end. All right, so let's get... Okay, we digress and we need to go back to the prostate. And so you've had these two tubes, the Wolfian and the... Malarian. Malarian? Malarian. 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 Sounds like a spaceship. Come together below... Yeah, into the urogenital sinus. Into yep. the urogenital sinus, which yep. forms the urethra. Anteriorly yeah, will, and the rectum will, yeah. posteriorily, ultimately. Yeah. Yep, okay. Yep, yep. Now what? Okay. So now at this point, you know, four guys, we're ten minutes into Matt's embryology. Four, you keep asking questions. <laughs> um, uh, so then, gonads at about four weeks will differentiate, and so it, it appears that the strongest uh, influence here is coming from the Y chromosome, and that will cause a change in the gonad itself. So we're now talking. Uh, male specific. Yeah, so now it would jump more to a phenotypical male. Right. And so then the male, if sorry, the, the testy, which becomes masculinized, um, will start to produce different cells. And two different cells that are important here are Leydig cells and Sertoli cells. Yep. Now the Leydig cells, what do they produce just in the normal testes? Do you remember? Uh, so the Leydig's produce testosterone and the Sertoli produces androgen binding protein. Is okay. that right? Yeah, yeah, well, basically, well, the first one, 100%. So, testosterone, and the testosterone now selects for the Wolfian ducts. Oh. Okay, so the Wolfian ducts now become more dominant, whereas the Sertoli starts to produce a substance called malarian inhibiting substance. All right. Okay, and so what that does is kind of degenerates the malarian ductal system. All right, so what's the point of it being there in the first place? Well, that's the, the ductal system that becomes dominant in the female. Ah. And so that becomes the fallopian tubes. So you're saying up until four weeks, the body's hedging its bets between male and female, waiting for the Y or X chromosome to kick in and determine whether it's going to push it down a more masculinized lineage yeah. or feminized lineage. Yeah. And that the cells that develop after this process, influenced by the chromosomes produce certain hormones and yeah. these hormones are going to select whether it's going to be the Wolfian or the Malarian. Yeah. Uh, Wolfian now down the male lineage, reproductive Direct. tract. Yeah. Malarian female. Yeah. Okay, so we're going down the male tract now. Where's this prostate at? Okay, so the so now like the Wolfian duck will be all in intact. Okay. And then where it was sitting right next to the gonads, you'll have a communication go into the gonads. And that would be the, the reti testes and then essentially the epididymis. Okay. Okay. Just below the gonad is going to be a band of tissue, which is a ligament that will pull the testes down. That's the gubernaculum, yep. which will pull the Which te- is one of my favorite words in anatomy. Which will pull the gonad down past the kidneys, keep going down through the pelvis and then into the scrotum. So can I ask a question about the gubernaculum? Mm. Uh, is it the gubernaculum that's responsible for why one testy is lower than the other in males? I have no idea. Probably not. 
I think it will probably the, isn't that a renal? It's potentially a renal artery. Yeah, the, the, I think there's theories. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, d- I don't know. But that's, I that's another I podcast. So. I wouldn't imagine so. That's for the testes podcast. Yeah. So as it's pull, it pulls it past, um, there are some remnants left um, for from the malarian duct, though. What are they? Okay. There's on the cranial portion, so that at the highest part where the malarian ducts once were near the gonad. Yeah. There's a little uh, bit stuck to the side of the testes, which we still have in adults, um, which is called the appendix testes, yeah. which is like a little, if you were to... Um, palpate. Palpate. Yeah. You would feel this kind of lump. And what's uh, that called? The appendix testes. And that is part of the... Malarian system. Brilliant. Brilliant. But Where, it has no, plays no role. I don't believe so. Whereas the most caudal part, so the one that was right down in the cloaca, that becomes the prostatic utricle. The prostatic utricle. So now we're moving into the prostate. Yeah, now the sounds of it. That's right. Yep. And utricle sounds like uterus. Yeah, so this would be kind of the uterus of the male. So you're saying that if we had different hormones at week four stimulating which path to go down, wolfian or malarian, which one to uh, choose to yeah. mature, that that part would turn into the uterus? Probably a part of it, yeah. So is the prostatic utricle analogous to the female uterus? Probably a part of it, yeah. So men have a uterus. Yeah. I like that. And the females do have a prostate. In the uterus? Uh, no, out, it's more alongside the urethra. So I think it's called the paraurethral glands. So you're finally interesting. <laughs> Your embryology is finally interesting. So um, the final structures, so all those... All that Wolfian duct system yeah. becomes a sec- essentially your vas deferens, mm, mm. okay, and then it kind of exaggerates towards the um, the developing prostate, which it, is where gonna, it comes together. Yeah, which is going to be the seminal vesicles. Okay, okay, and then that will put the ejacular ducts into the prostate. All right, so you're the, su- the rest of the prostate comes from the urogenital sinus, that cloaca region. So pretty much the majority of the prostate is that urogenital sinus. You've got a bit of that female part, which is the utricle, which is actually where the ejacular ducts come into it. Okay. And the rest of it would probably be um, from the Wolfian ducts, which is the vas deferens seminal vesicles. And then finally, the only uh, other remnants was it's probably mesoderm, which is the fibromuscular component of the prostate. Nice. Which I guess would have a uh, contractile yeah. uh, response. I mean, you could describe the prostate as a fibromuscular gland, right? It's a bunch of connective tissue with smooth muscle tissue dispersed throughout it. Um, okay, so let's just get people so they can put their head in the right space and picture the prostate. So again, above it's the bladder. Yep. If you look inside the prostate, there is a tube that moves through it. So think of the prostate as a ball, even though it's more like a cone shape. Walnut. Yeah, like a walnut shape, right? But think inside of it, if you were to just do a section, like cut what we call sagittally through it, or you could say coronally, for example, frontally, and have a look inside, you'd see a hollow tube. That's the urethra. And the utricle. And the utricle, which is a bit of a mounded... Crest. Crest. Crested portion. All right. You'd also see a couple of holes, right? 
Yeah, that's the ejaculate ducts. Exactly. So two holes either side of the urethra. Those two holes, if you were to follow them through and up and behind the prostate, so behind and up, it takes you to the seminal vesicles, yeah. which produ- produces seminal fluid, which is probably the bulk of ejaculate. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so when it's time for ejaculation, the smooth muscle in the seminal vesicles will contract and push you know, about two or so mils of seminal fluid into the prostate the prostate will contract as well because it's got muscles and squeeze its fluid, which is probably about 0.5 to 1 mils worth of stuff, into the urethra. And now inside the prostate, you've got a mixing of seminal and prostatic fluid. And obviously what's come in from there is going to be semen, uh, sorry, spermatozoa from the testes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then together it's all mixed and then it's ejaculated out of the penis. Yeah. Does it make sense? Done well. Well, thank you. Oh, the only addition, which I'm not sure if you added, was the bulbar urethral gland. Ah, uh, yes. And so they're sitting kind of on the uh, the pelvic diaphragm, that kind of muscular diaphragm, mm. which the um, prostate sits on. So, okay, I didn't say... So either side of the prostate, there's also some muscle called the levator ani. What's I that? think that's a whole kind of... The whole bunch of muscles, all that. Which is the main muscle for the pelvic floor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and those glands sit in it. So I think when they can... Bulbar urethral? Yeah. So that, I think they give more of a alkalinic secretion, which um, is a precursor for ejaculation, which I think stops the acidity from the urine. Yes. Yeah, so there's heaps of things. I mean, when do you want to start talking about what's inside of prostatic fluid? You want to talk more about the anatomy or get back to the nervous innovation later? Not, not concerned. Oh, you, good. You decide. I think we should talk about what is actually in the prostatic fluid. Okay. So we need for, to talk about... For humans? Yeah, for humans. <laughs> I, I didn't do my research on... <laughs> dogs. Again, that paper was all about dogs. And with the secretion, um, interestingly, the, <laughs> the, the composition of this excretion from the prostate is different whether you um, uh, encourage it to, I guess, ejaculate or empty Mm -hmm. either pharmacologically versus uh, manually. Okay. So if you were to (laughs) manually stimulate the prostate, what comes out of it is slightly different if you were to do it um, through neural innovation by um, drugs. Would that be different to if the we're talking about dogs? Dogs. So, what if the dog was having um, relations with another dog? Would it be different again, or would that be the well, same I mean, as directly stimulating the prostate? If you can, tr- if you're trying to just isolate what comes out of the prostate, oh, and, gotcha. and not, not everything else. Gotcha. That's what I was meaning. Wow. Yeah. You can pharmacologically stimulate the just the prostate to contract. Well, I think you actually. I think they what they did was they. Um, Stimulate the nerves that stimulate the prostate. Yeah. So they just do some electrophysiology on the some of those I don't know hypogastric nerves or something. Yeah. You you'll know the innovation, um, or um, whether you give some drugs maybe in the local vicinity, which are either sympathomimetics or sympathomimetics, yeah, <laughs> or parasympathetic. Oh, I want to know about these differences. Well, how was it different? Did it say? Oh, it's just the composition. As in, um, the but I didn't really look into it because it was such a. Big article, yeah, and it went on. For Why were you looking at 
dog prostate <laughs> articles. <laughs> I was just doing comparative comparative anatomy. Yeah. That's and how that, you, that's how you was explain bit, it to your wife. And that was, that was a big one. Well, interestingly, the dog uh, seems to be, it doesn't have seminal vesicles, dogs. Really? No. So that means probably it's um, Most of prostate it's will uh, compensate. Compensate, that's right. But the dog out of, I think any animal has the greatest uh, fluid e- uh, ejaculate from the prostate. How much? Uh, it produces more in one hour than humans do in a day. Wow. But part of it's, um, it, it shoots it out with its urine as well. So that's why, that's the tree reflex. So when dogs just pee on trees all the time, yeah. a lot of that is just prosthetic fluid. Really? Yeah. That's interesting as well. Okay, so if we have a look, right, the average volume of human ejaculate is about three mils, three to five mils. That right. doesn't give you excuse to pee on trees, Michael, in the public. No, that's a good point. I'll try not to in the future. So of this three to five mils, uh, sperm or spermatozoa, you know, which contains the genetic material is less than 1% of this. So you have around about 100 million sperm per mil inside yeah, of this, yeah. right? So you go between 300 to 500 million sperm. So how much per ejaculate in mils? Uh, you have about 100 million sperm per mil. Yeah, no, but how much whole fluid? Of the whole thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Semen. Three to five mils. Okay. Now, of the seminal vesicles, like we said before, produce the bulk, and that's about 1.5 to 2 mils worth of fluid. Uh, the prostate produces around about half to 1 mil worth of fluid, and all the other glands together produce around about 0.1 to 0.2 mils. Mm. All right? So the prostate itself has a whole bunch of secretions. So these secretions include things like citrate and potassium and zinc and fructose. And it's very high in zinc, right? Yeah, I'll talk about that in a okay. sec. Really high. Um, spermine, amino acids, prostaglandins, enzymes. So all this can be found. So there is some prostaglandins. Yeah, but most of it, it's seminal. if not all of it, comes from the seminal glands. Okay. But I'm just highlighting that if you were to extract seminal fluid, you're going to find a bunch of this stuff in there. Uh, should we go through a couple of them and talk about what each of these components of the prosthetic fluid does? Yeah, just the interesting ones. All right. So firstly, citrate. So citrate, we know, is part of the citric acid cycle, the Krebs cycle. So it is a metabolic component used to produce ATP in the mitochondria. Now, here's the thing. In the prostate epithelia, um, citrate's made from taking aspartic acid and glucose and, and snapping it together, right? And it's about 500 to 1,000 times higher in the prostate than it is in our blood plasma. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. Really high. So the reason why it's high mm. is for some reason, I couldn't find why the mitochondria inside the prostate isn't good at uh, metabolizing citrate. So when we do it's, it, we, we oxidize citrate so we can basically produce Some of ATP. those, I think in, uh, what is it called? Pruvate dehydrogenase steps. Yeah. Isn't, aren't they zinc? Dependent, some of those? Oh, there's so many enzymes, enzymes? that are zinc dependent. Yeah. So many enzymes. So for some reason, uh, the mitochondria cannot keep up with the amount of citrate that's produced uh, and we end up having huge amounts of citrate. Uh, what's its function? I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't find what the function of this high citrate. There's so much we don't know about the prostate secretions. Okay. Uh, spermidine, something I'd never heard before, uh, which is a polyamine and that's created by... Sounds like a drink. <laughs> Catonic. Okay, well, I, I, I don't know what you're to trying heard to... heard the little fellas. <laughs> Take spermidine. Take spermidine. Three times a day. <laughs> so sper- spermidine is created by this enzyme called ornithine decarboxylase. 
right? And interestingly, uh, it's this ornithine decarboxylase enzyme that makes this spermidine, again, I haven't said what spermidine does, is actually in high amounts in benign prostatic hyperplasia tissue. So they're thinking that if we inhibit the ornithine decarboxylase from creating spermidine, it may actually be a chemotherapeutic target for prostate cancer, right? So if it's basically saying that this enzyme is high in tissues that are hyperplastic or cancerous, so tissues that are constantly growing and dividing, and so it might be a target for chemotherapeutic uh, agents. What now, about as a screening tool? Uh, potentially, potentially, but it may not be able to delineate between BPH or cancer which oh, okay. is important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, what does spermidine do? So polyamines, just a couple of amino acids merged together. Uh, it plays a role in gating and transport of substances through channels in the epithelia. So it's basically a, a gating mechanism, which is boring, but it allows for things to go back and forth through the epithelial tissue. Prostaglandins. So they thought they originally called prostaglandins because they thought this was the primary uh, component of prostaglandins static fluid. Yep. The prostate produced it, but it doesn't. Um, it's mainly produced by, like we said, the seminal vesicles. There's 15 different types of prostaglandins in human semen. 15 different types. And they do... Repeat that again. There's 15 different types of prostaglandins. Now, prostaglandins are made from the cell membranes of broken down cells, right? So they're fatty acid... They're basically fatty acids. That's what prostaglandins are. And, and like you said, they help... Um, break down, they help stimulate the cervix, help break down cervical mucosa. Um, they do a whole bunch of stuff. Interestingly, it appears, I'm not sure how strong this effect, but there is, there is some protective effect on as, as, aspirin and NSAIDs on prostate cancer. And so, okay, just allow, merge the link there. What's the link between NSAIDs, prostaglandins and oh, prostate cancer? So... NSAIDs, which aspirin is one, uh, is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which is an agent that uh, stops essentially the formation of prostaglandins. Yeah, because prostaglandins uh, are a primary uh, factor with inflammation and pain and fever. Yeah. So it appears there are some, particularly for the COX-2. Okay. The the selective COX-2s. Wow. Some benefit. There you go. At reducing cancer risk. Whether there's a link there, I'm not sure. Oh, who knows? Who knows? All right, zinc. We'll do zinc and we'll do one more because there's so much stuff. Okay. Um, so zinc is basically primarily found in the prostate gland. And what, what you're going to find is about 140 micrograms per mil in semen. And that may not mean much to people, but it's huge. So, for example, the prostate gland has the highest amount of zinc per weight compared to any other organ of the whole body. So, the prostate gland loves its zinc. Now, more, what, than, more than Brazil nuts? Probably. Now here's the thing, right? So, let's just say you think, well, zinc is needed for my prostate gland and that zinc is needed for a whole bunch of enzymatic functions and so forth. So I'm going to increase my zinc intake orally through foods and vitamins and minerals. Uh, It doesn't affect it. Oral ingestion of zinc doesn't affect how much zinc is in the prostate gland, unfortunately. Now, what does it do? So zinc binds to amino acids and proteins, 
that's one important role. It also is one of the most important enzymes, uh, most of the, one of the most important uh, minerals that need to bind to enzymes for them to work. So it's like a substrate for enzymes. If enzymes don't have it, it won't work. Not all enzymes, but some really important ones. So what does it do? So zinc regulates PSA, which we're going to talk about shortly, which is prostatic... Uh, specific antigen. Specific antigen. Um, here's an important one. How does that get into blood then? How does what get into blood? PSA. I'm sure, well, th- through the vasculature of the prostate. Okay. There's always there's venous plexuses that, okay. that are removed away from all that region, right? Um, zinc might be antibacterial. It's pro- one of the reasons mm. why it's probably so high in the prostate gland is to uh, reduce bacterial UTIs. infections. Yeah, UTIs. Another one, so this is interesting, is that zinc regulates DNA integrity. So a lot of the uh, DNA regulating enzymes for creating DNA, copying DNA and all that type of, and, and regenerating, correcting DNA errors is zinc-based enzymes. And so there's some hypotheses out there that prostate glands that are low in zinc have DNA replicating issues, which leads to cancers. And yeah. there's evidence that prostate cancers are low in zinc. So there seems to be a link between the zinc concentration and prostate cancers. All right, the last one, the prostate secreting proteins, also known as the calicrines, which sounds like sounds like Superman's original name, right? What I, is Superman's original name? Kalel, Kalel. You um, wouldn't know. You've know. you've never read a comic book in your life. Have, have you read a comic book at all, ever? Not front to back, no. Really, but back to front. I picked them up. Time to time and just throw them across them. the room. Say, <laughs> so what is this crap? And slam it on the floor. All right, so prostate secreting proteins, just a bunch of different proteins. They're all basically what we call serine proteases. A protease is just an enzyme that chops a protein at the serine residue, right? So serine's an amino acid. So it finds that amino acid in the protein, chops it up, breaks the protein up. Um, why do we have these uh, protein-specific antigens or protein-secreting uh, prostate secreting proteins we don't really know um one of the hypotheses especially for psa which matt's going to talk about in a sec which is a marker for some types of prostate issues uh seems to be an anti-clotter so without prostatic specific antigen seems to be that the semen clots significantly and so the psa breaks the the clotting proteins up and it makes it more of a viscous fluid as a, so if you were to get semen and let it stand in a, in a jar or a tube or whatever, you'd see that it would separate and it would clot out. And that's got to do with the clotting agents and the PSA separating out. So that actually makes the, the um, fluid or the semen less viscous. Is that correct. What you're yeah, correct. Well, interestingly, in other animals like bats and rodents, it does the opposite. So it actually yeah. coagulates, which is important because what that does is it causes a, um, what do they call it? A plug. A mating plug. Okay. Oh, okay. So it stops another male. Another male can't come in and... So to speak. Yeah. Okay. And compete with the sperm from them. (laughs) You get the picture. Yeah, I get the picture. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to go into any more detail. All right, that'll be enough of the the components of prostatic fluid, don't you think? I think it's more than enough. Oh, thank you. So you wanted me to stop, what, 15 minutes ago? No, no, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> well done. What you about now? You are so condescending. Does he, does he bother the listeners just as much as he bothers me? I bet you he does. Um, 
right, let, I think we should talk about PSA a little bit as a marker for a type of prostate issue. And we can start talking about the three types of prostate issues that we'll probably come across, which is prostate cancer, benign prostatic hyperplasia or BPH, and prostatitis. So you talk about the first two. I'll talk about prostatitis. So I'll see you in 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I don't really know a great deal in terms of the, the PSA in cool, terms thanks, of um, how it's created, therefore leaving, leading to... I don't think many people do. They're le- leading to um, you know, a potential screening tool. So this is... Um, they take PSA levels um, of the blood and they postulate, I guess, an increase in a number, amount would correlate to an increased size of tissue in the prostate. Yeah. So, so as the tissue starts to grow, it produces more PSA proportionally. And that's for both benign prostatic hyperplasia and prostate cancer. Yeah. Because both have tissue growth, right? Yeah. So more tissue, more more PSA. Um, let's first talk, so with those two uh, disorders, diseases, um, one's benign, obviously. And so one's... Uh, malignant. Yes, that's right. So just going back one step, so I think part of the regulation of the prostate and its function and how the cells um, survive, grow, but also produce their products is dependent on androgens. So a lot of that will be coming from testosterone, which is produced from the Leydig cells, presumably. Yeah. And when it goes into the prostate, uh, it's converted into a more potent, more powerful form of the androgen being dihydroepitestosterone. Yeah, and that's like 10 times more strong than testosterone. Yeah, it's the primary stimulator for the um, maturation and growth of the prostate gland. And the the cells, which is probably the tubular cells, which I'd imagine make up the majority of mass of the tissues. And interestingly, there's obviously, if the, the plan is if we stop testosterone turning into dihydrotestosterone uh, by inhibiting the enzyme that does this, yeah. it might be a, potenti- a potential uh, therapeutic intervention. Right. And so the enzyme that does it is 5-alpha reductase. Okay. So you do a f- you take a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, yep. you're stopping the dihydrotestosterone from stimulating the prostate to grow and develop any further. So that seems to be um, one particular treatment option, um, particularly in benign prostatic hyperplasia. So this is not this is not a treatment. This was just a a thing they found was in castrated animals, males, um, the prostate gland would shrink to a, a very small size. So that's when the, they did this. Yeah, that's okay. the effect of testosterone on the prostate. Now, as you age, so it appears that as you get you know around fifty, um, the amount of testosterone that we produce as males diminishes, drops. So you would think it would actually do the opposite, but yeah. there seems to be an intrinsic change within the prostate probably from that enzyme that produces more of the dihydro testosterone and that therefore has a, a greater um, trophic effect growth effect so the actual prostate increases in size now starting st- staying with bph so, okay you want to go yeah just quickly i think we need to talk about you know why is benign prostatic hyperplasia and prostate cancer an issue so because you've got this gland that encapsulates the urethra, the tube, obviously, that, that transmits the urine from the bladder out to your toilet. If this yeah. tissue grows, divides, enlarges, um, that tissue can grow outwards and not impact the urethra at all. 
all that tissue can grow inwards and constrict the hollow lumen of the urethra, which makes it difficult to urinate. Yep. And so, so what we'll find is that for, for both benign prostate hyperplasia and prostate cancer, the primary symptoms here is, you know, urinary urgency. Particularly, urin- particularly BBH. Yep, urinary frequency, um, in a, a weak urine stream, inability to uh, fully void your bladder. These types of things are the major symptoms of both BPH and, and prostate cancer. Definitely BBH. The prostatic cancer might be a bit more contentious. Yes. I mean, there might be blood associated with the urine yeah. in that case. So I'll explain that quickly in, in terms of the anatomy. So think of the gland like a walnut. Um, there's two ways they can sometimes break it up anatomically. There's the lobes and then there's the zones. So st- starting with the lobe, um, I don't know how you can describe it. At the, at the posterior surface, it's kind of got a cleft in it in the midline and so it creates two posterior lobes so it's actually got five lobes to it anatomically so it's kind of got two posterior two lateral and one median or medial probably median and that's the anatomical lobes now that furrow or that kind of cleft is becomes important in a second when i talk about the cancer okay but in terms of the zones this is probably more possibly embryological named because it's from different tissues but um, the first one is actually what hugs the urethra and this is the transitional zone the reason why it's called the transitional it's actually made up of transitional epithelial just like the bladder does and like the urethra does so it can change its shape so when we look at epithelia which always lines hollow structures epithelia can be squished you know so squamous shaped it can be cube shaped it can be columnar shaped and usually the shape and the layers determine the function. So if you have transitional, it means it's going to be some squished, some cuboidal, some columnar in a number of different layers. And the whole point of that is so that it can distend and come back together. Mm. So that, you know, the, the urethra can obviously grow, uh, widen and constrict without any damage to the surrounding tissue. Yeah. yeah. So and go so on. So that's the transitional area. And that's at the end of the prostate going towards the penis, right? That's No, it's just kind of wrapping it up. So as the, the prostate. As the as the urethra goes from the bladder through the prostate, that transitional zone kind of wraps it up. Gotcha. And that's actually the tissue that becomes most affected with BPH. Benign prostatic hyperplasia. Yeah. So the tissue in the transitional area surrounding the urethra in the prostate is what thickens and therefore it's it's seemingly inevitably yeah. going to impact on the diameter of that tube. Correct. And that's why its effect on the urinary continence um, is most sensitive. Okay. So now with prostate cancer, which – so it's not the transitional so, tissue. Yeah, so from the, from the transitional, which is also called paraurethral uh, yep. zone. So you can use – Either one of those terms. Going slightly outwards from that is the central zone, okay? And then that makes up a certain percentage. I forget the top of my head. Um, I'll find it in a second. Whereas the 25% is the the central zone. Then you go outside that. The transitional zone is about 5 to 10%. Then you go outside that and that's the peripheral zone. Okay. So this is the majority of the prostate. So the central zone is the base of the ejaculatory ducts. Right, that, okay. that's where that sits. That's where probably also the utricle will be in that area as well. And the peripheral zone's the largest one, right? So it's yeah, 70, six, 65%, 70%. Okay, and, so and that this surrounds the central zone and the partially surrounds the distal part of the prostatic um, urethra. Yeah, and this is the area where cancer is likely to originate. So could you say that 
the transitional zone is directly around the tube and the peripheral zone is sort of moving outwards yeah, yeah. away through the tissue of the prostate. Correct. And so that's where cancer is affected. Yeah. And, and so it affects the follicular sort of cells that are present and creates nodules or how does this... Uh, the prostate cancer, so I think they call it um, pin cells, so the prostatic intraepithelial okay. or neoplastic cells. All right. So that, again, would be the tubular cells, I would imagine, as, a, as the most common around each one of those ducts, so the tubular, which is the endoepithelial cells. Now, why, why I said it's important to know the peripheral? Because it's starting, starting out in the periphery of the um, prostate. By the time it moves in towards the urethra, it's going to be a much bigger tumour. Okay. Statistically. Yeah. So... Um, you're going to see a later tumour when it starts to affect urine flow gotcha. compared to BPH, which is always... So how do they know that there's a prostate cancer? Are there no clinical signs? Okay, so like you said, um, sitting on the posterior part of the um, prostate is the rectum, specifically the ampulla of the rectum, okay? And so um, that's the, the two posterior lobes. Remember I said the posterior lobes with that furrow? Yeah. So when the doctor puts their finger up the bum, mm-hmm. and because obviously age is a, a big risk factor for prostate cancer, so this is why all males would be asked to do a DRE or a PRE, um, digital rectal examination. I don't after know, forty, after forty-five, yeah, something like that, because yeah. uh, the risk is high for. Um, yeah, cancer. I think I think the the amount of people who get prostate cancer in their forties is three percent of the total, right? And so that number goes up, and it's at its highest in sixties. And then drops back down again. The older you get. So as the prostate cancer's getting bigger, um, what will potentially do is it will start to create those lobal structures that I mentioned. So it becomes lumpy. Yeah. And so when the doctor puts their finger at the bum, um, usually they'll feel a furrow. If I guess it depends how good they are with their finger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the cancer is more likely to flatten that furrow out because it's happening in the periphery of the prostate and mm. more at the back lobes. Okay. So it will kind of flatten and go out more. So I think the DRE or the PRE is more sensitive for a change than the BPH. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so that becomes important. But I believe, in, if we're going to stick with prostate cancer here, um, another interest in anatomy, uh, and this is impacts the way it spreads, is... Which one? Um, cancer? Prost- prostate cancer. Yeah. yeah. The way that the um, the peritoneum comes over the top of the bladder, it does come down a bit. So the peritoneum is a cling wrap of the uh, the gastrointestinal tract, basically. Of oh, the abdomen, the, sorry. Of the abdomen, yeah, yeah. So you only get a top surface over the bladder and yeah. a bit in front of the rectum. But okay. embryologically, remember I said there were, it was open? So this peritoneum actually went all the way down to where the cloaca was, right? Yeah. And so that has been fused off now and so there's a really strong kind of ligament right behind the prostate between the prostate and the rectum mm. so that means that the is ca- it a ligament or is it fascia it's well probably probably easier depends on what you want to call it um there is a name i'll find it for you anyway what that actually means is the cancer is that the denovilliers is that what it's called i'll find out anyway um what, what that means is the cancer rarely um metastasizes or moves to the rectum. into the rectum because it's such a th- thick tissue yeah that's okay. right 
Uh, it's called the rectovesicular septum, but that's only just means the divide between the the bladder and the rectum. The, not, I think it's I think it is the denim villiers. Okay, which so is which is that the okay. fascia that separates the rectum to the prostate. Yeah. Okay. So that means it doesn't usually spread posteriorly, but it will spread kind of superior posteriorly, which means it probably goes bladder? up into the seminal vesicles, into the bladder. But then, interestingly, probably with what about lymphatics? Like, how's yeah. the prostate cancer Lymph- spread? Lymphatics and also um, uh, nerves. It seems to exaggerate the spread into bone. Why? How? Just the way it it, it takes it away. I don't Interesting. know. Um, so that I means did, I did have a f- I did have a figure here. A secondary from prostate cancer is bone cancer. Which oh is yeah, it's huge. It's huge. It's, I think it's something like ninety percent of metastasis. Is bone, in bone, which is nasty. Yeah, okay. so by far that's the most common place. Wow, I, I did read it somewhere, but I just can't see it now. Um, so that's kind of the main difference between the two. Um, I don't think there's much else about the two we can really talk about apart from move on to prostatitis. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so have we done all the anatomy? Is it no? What? I'm going to talk about some more anatomy here with the prostatitis because I'm yeah. going to talk about innovation. So, prostatitis is a little bit of a misnomer, but prostatitis sort of makes it seem like there's inflammation of the prostate. Basically, there's acute and chronic prostatitis, and the acute prostatitis is a bacterial uh, infection of the prostate itself, which can be sometimes um, identified or diagnosed through certain tests, bacterial tests, culture tests, things like that. Not always. Uh, mainly symptomatic, but the symptoms are very similar to, you know, like BPH, where it's urinary frequency, urinary urgency, and so forth. Um, but the chronic, the chronic prostatitis is a tricky one because it's a thought that it is a bacterial infection that keeps coming and going and waning in its symptoms and so forth. So is that just based on symptoms? Correct. And so the symptoms for this chronic prostatitis or just prostatitis generally seems to be things like increased urinary urgency. Increase urinary frequency, pain upon urination, pain after sex, uh, pain in the perineum, pain in the scrotum, pain in the rectum, right? Okay. Uh, which seems to be worse sitting down and partially or fully alleviated when standing up. Right. And so the thought is, oh, okay, this is prostatitis. Um, it's an inflammatory effect due to bacteria. Here's some antibiotics. But there's more evidence coming out that it, it may not actually be that. And I first found this out with when I spoke to my physio. So my physio, Peter Dornan, um, who is a brilliant physio and a prostate expert, uh, not just here in Queensland, but worldwide, right? He told me this story when I went to see him and he said, look, he had a urologist come in and the urologist had terrible pain in the scrotum, terrible pain that would not alleviate. And the urologist had actually booked in. And a urologist usually looks after this I think the urologist would know what's going on, right? And he, it was so severe he had booked in to have surgery. I'm quite sure to either have a nerve ablated or or have a testy removed, right? That's how bad the pain was. Now he was seeing Peter and Peter was doing some manipulations, doing some stretching, doing some activities, some exercises and some movements. And as it was just manipulating, you know, just a little bit of massage down at the sacrum, there was a crack and from that crack was a relief of the pain in the perineum and the scrotum. And the urologist said, I don't know what you've done, but thank you. 
And Peter had no idea what was going on. And they started to discuss it. And the urologist said, look, this is a research project. If you want to do a master's, you should research this perineal pain or scrotal pain and what's causing it. So Peter ended up doing an entire master's project on this and identified that the pedendal nerve, which comes from, I think it's S2 to S4, mm-hmm. comes down and this pedendal nerve basically provides, it's a mixed nerve, sensory motor, provides innovation to um, the penis, the perineum, the scrotum and the rectum and found that you can have these pedendal nerve entrapments due to the ligaments, fibers, tendons, all that type of stuff in that pelvic region, which can mimic the symptomatology of prostatitis. Mm. And so in some cases when it is this pedendal nerve entrapment or pedendal neuralgia, which it's sometimes called, maybe physiotherapy is all you need. And so it's a really interesting and growing point that there may be individuals being treated for prostatitis when it may be uh, something that could be treated with a physiotherapist. Yeah, wow. Which I think is just amazing and just highlights that even in, you know, 2020, there's still a lot we don't know about anatomy and the flow-on effects, right? Definitely. When it comes to other nervous innovation of the prostate, in addition to... So the pedendal nerve doesn't directly innovate the prostate, but it does innovate areas like, like I said, the penis and the perineum and the and the rectum and the prostate... Uh, and the... Uh, uh, penis? Penis. I think I may have said that already. And mimic the symptoms of benign prostatic hyperplasia, right? But the prostate itself is innovated through the autonomic nervous system. So, you know, it makes sense because it's a gland that's going to secrete stuff. It it does things. It has motor activity and we don't consciously control it, so it has to be autonomic. Mm. So the sympathetic fight or flight, parasympathetic rest and digest fibers that come in through the hypogastric nerve plexus and through the uh, pelvic nerve plexus, right? So the sympathetic neurons that come through the hypogastric plexus seem to innovate the smooth muscle. So when it's time for ejaculation and to push that uh, prostatic fluid out, that's going to be the sympathetic nervous system. And the way that both Matt and I were taught this was point and shoot, right? So can you explain to the listeners what point and shoot is referring to? Parasympathetic um, is the P. In point. In, and that will give you an erection. Yeah, so point is the erection. But saying that, I would imagine the parasympathetic would also have some degree of secretions in some of the glandular tissue in yeah. the, the tract. Similar which, to digestive, right? Which would allow lubrication and preparation. Yep. Whereas sympathetic is to shoot, so that is for ejaculation. Yep. But And that's where I would imagine that the majority of the volume would come out of the prostate gland. Correct. And so it seems to be exactly what Matt said. The sympathetic contract the smooth muscle, push the seminal fluid out, or the uh, prostatic fluid out, and the and the fourth zone of the prostate is a fibromuscular zone, and so I'd imagine that would probably have a, a big effect with the sympathetic response, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the parasympathetic seems to innovate the glandular tissue, like Matt said, for the production of this uh, these secretions. Mm. All right, we we done. How long did that podcast go for? We've, we're currently at one hour and one minute. We spoke for an hour on the prostate and 49 to 55 minutes of that was embryology. <laughs> Which wasn't actually really prostate on its own. It was a bit of the whole tract development. So that means we can avoid it when we talk about other parts of the genitourinary tract. I think you enjoyed it. I did actually. I always ask questions because I know not much. Anything else? Do you want a couple of... Risks for prostate cancer, I've already passed that. No, I think let's do it because this is a health podcast. Um, 
obviously age is the primary risk factor. Yeah, age. But diet has its effect, right? You were telling me earlier. Yeah, it appears to be it's, it appears to be a Western phenomenon. Now, I did read an article. I'm not sure. I didn't substantiate this completely, but it, it seems that the prostate is more dominant in mammals, and it and it appears evolutionarily came came out of a similar time that the mammals developed breast tissue. Now, in terms of a Western context, context, both breast cancer in females is the most um, dominant cancer, and the prostate cancer in ma- in males is the most dominant cancer in the West. So there seems to be a strong link with environmental, particularly diet, high saturated diet, low fiber, low degrees of exercise, obesity. But also interestingly, the the genes that seem to mutate in both are the BRCA genes, so BRCA one and BRCA two. Which, which are oncogenes, right? Yeah, which are breast cancer oncogenes. So they are the ones that kind of have an impact on the cell cycle. So I just found that interesting that these are running in parallel. So obviously yeah. being a male, older male, the strongest from a genetic, sorry, ethnic standpoint, it seems like um, African-American uh, in the US is a big one um, within and then the Western populations. But that could be just coming down to lifestyle. Even like... Low in Asia, but when uh, Japanese, for instance, very low risk in Japan, but when they move to, say, America, after a number of decades, then their risk of prostate cancer almost uh, matches. Wow. Yeah. Which tells you that it's, that's environmental. And then uh, family history is also quite strong as well. Smoking, overweight, all the typical risk factors for most diseases as yep. well. Yep. Okay. I think but that's really it. Cool. Mm. Thanks, Maddie. Well, look, we're, we're back in the game. Do we have any idea what we're going to do next? Uh, We've got a whole list of stuff, right? Like always, suggestions. If you've got a suggestion of a topic you'd like to cover. A couple of people suggest the immune system. So we probably should jump onto a couple of immune... We haven't done one? We haven't. Okay, yeah, we should. I think we should divide the immune system up and look at a couple of things, look at some disorders too. What do you reckon? We could definitely break it into innate... Adaptive. Oh, that's a good idea. And then look into... Um, we did one on inflammation, yeah. but we need to re-record it because I think the quality of that... The, audi- the audio. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> not the content. The audio quality was poor. So we might do an inflammation one as well. All right. All right, Michael. Um, if anyone, anyone wants to contact us, you can contact us via email, uh, which is G-U-B-I-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S, which is G-U Biosciences at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Dr. Bartox, D-R-B-A-R-T-O-X, but Matt barely goes on social media. Or you can contact me, <laughs> Dr. Mike Todorovic. Uh, I, th- I think that's, yeah, what my handle is. Or, doc- or Mikey Todd. I always forget this. But go on my Instagram page. That's Dr. Mike Todorovic. What D- about your TikTok? Yeah, I sort of didn't continue with that. Um, It'd be hard to... Keep all those going, really. Oh, well, 30 second videos on anatomy and physiology is bloody hard. But to make it creative, find me on Instagram because I've got a whole bunch of videos there that are useful and beneficial. So, D, uh, Dr. Mike Todorovic on Instagram and find us on YouTube, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical YouTube and Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast, which you're listening to now. Tell your friends, tell everybody. If you're studying and you know somebody that needs help, please, we love creating free educational resources for you and your friends. Yeah, and maybe Enjoy. and maybe if you're a health professional or a science specialist uh, in a in a specialized area of the uh, 
human body, maybe you can contact us and whilst we're all in lockdown, we can do a podcast. Yeah, as long as you're legitimate. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.